Hey there, language lovers. Welcome to a new episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm Shannon Kennedy here with my co-host, Benny Lewis. In this episode, we're chatting with the Stephen Krashen, best known for his work and research around one of the most popular language acquisition methods, comprehensible, now also referred to as compelling, input. In this discussion, we cover how a trip to Ethiopia led to Stephen Krashen's career in linguistics, why we know grammar but struggle to use it correctly and how to bridge this gap, what comprehensible input is and why it works and how it differs from compelling input, why graded readers are effective resources for language learners, how the speaking approach is still a mostly input approach, and making the shift from input to output. If you enjoy this episode of the podcast, we appreciate hearing from you. You can let us know your thoughts so we can keep doing more of what you enjoy over at languagehacking.com slash review. All of the links, resources, research, and everything else mentioned as a part of this episode can be found in the show notes. Now let's get into our conversation with Stephen. The links and resources mentioned in this episode can be found at languagehacking.com forward slash 74. Welcome to the Language Hacking Podcast from Fluent in Three Months. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. I'm joined by my co-host, Shannon, and today I am very excited to be interviewing Stephen Krashen. He is an iconic name in language learning. He's published uh, more than 486 publications. 580, come on. 580, oh man, I'm, I have to catch up. And by the time this is done, 581. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> 580 publications and has contributed immensely to the field of second language acquisition with some incredible insights. And he's had a huge influence in on so many people in how they've created their own courses and how they themselves have successfully learned languages. So I want to hear all about that. And thank you so much for joining us on the call today, Stephen. Hey, Benny, I thought you were going to make me look good with the introduction. You left out a few things. I was the 1976 Incline Bench Press Champion of Venice Beach. <laughs> when I was 10 years old, I was second place in a ping pong table tennis tournament in Chicago. Uh, I have a black belt in Taekwondo, which I got on the basis of the written examination. So these, these are my real accomplishments. <laughs> the written examination. That's good. Yeah, I always tell people that they always leave out that when I was 14 years old, I got the 25 meter swimming uh, third place competition results. You know, people always forget to say that when they're giving an intro for me. Was it freestyle, breaststroke, crawl, backstroke? Uh, bre breaststroke. Well, you know, uh, that extra tiny bit harder for... Uh... Then I should also add this. Uh, when we were in Israel, I, I with 5,000 other people, swam across Lake Tiberias. Three miles, everybody was using the breaststroke. No exceptions. There you go. A little bit more than my 25 meters then. All right. So I want to dive right in. And I would love to hear, like, how did you get into the whole field of second language acquisition and uh, like what inspired you to do that and how did your initial studies then come about? Originally, I got interested because I didn't know what to do with my life. And my wife and I uh, had spent some time abroad and we wanted to go back and be abroad again. We had uh, five months in Israel, two years in Ethiopia, which is where we met. Ethiopia, three things happened. I met my wife. We were teaching at the same school, and that's been great. I discovered coffee, which changed everything, okay? And I learned to speak Amharic, which was a lot of fun, okay? And that's been it. And what do I do now? I didn't, uh, went back to graduate school to get an ESL certificate because I liked grammar so much, okay? Mm -hmm. And the research twisted me around. And I went in a completely different direction. That's what happened. I discovered Noam Chomsky. I discovered all this stuff, a couple of experiments, and the rest is history. Prior to learning Amharic, did you have any interest in learning languages and studying languages? Do you have any background prior to that? Yes. Yes, I always liked it. Um, my first triumph was 
I was given a passing, this is very similar to Benny's story. I was giving a passing grade in high school French under the condition that I never study French again at that school because the teacher gave me a break. I deserved to fail. He gave me a passing mark because I was doing okay in my other courses and he didn't want to ruin my career. And then I thought my life was music, piano. And I decided to take a year off. My parents were so generous, more than I deserved. And they financed me to a year in Vienna where I could study with my piano teacher's teacher, Frau Hinterhofer. And the Nazis said, you changed your name. You're really Jewish. She said, no, if I had changed my name, it would be Frau Vorhofer. Okay, front yard, not backyard. Anyway, I did much. She and I had a big argument after about two months. And I stopped dating with her. We just were not getting along. But I stayed there, kept doing piano, and I did very well with German. That was the turning point. I had a great time acquiring German. That's where I wound up putting most of my psychic energy. Okay. And that changed things right there. It was uh, languages, not music after that. So that got you, that it got you hooked on languages. And like you said, you kind of grew this interest in learning grammar and this passion for grammar. But you also said that that's changed over the years. So how did that happen? Changed over the years because of our research. We, uh, I was a beginning professor, uh, still you know, already doing well in the linguistics department at uh, USC. And our first studies, uh, the big breakthroughs, number one, we discovered that adults go through a predictable order of acquisition. We knew that kids did it, Roger Brown's research. We knew that kids in second language, Dulé and Burt did it. And we found it for adults, which was kind of a surprise. We also found that the natural order only came up certain things early, certain things in the middle, certain things late, when it was a communicative situation. If you make it more of a grammar test, the order is destroyed. Certain things that are easy to learn, but late acquired, like the third person singular, go way up in rank and destroy the natural order. I figured something's going on here. Then I had a student in one of my classes at USC who, uh, as a homework assignment, she did an error analysis of her own English, native speaker of Chinese, Mandarin, in her 40s, and uh, fluent in English, but a slight accent. Uh, we figured out what we do. We'd have her just leave slips of paper around the apartment. And her son, who is native-like in English, would write down, they spoke English, would write down her mistakes in English. This error analysis. He showed her the mistakes afterwards. She could correct every single one of them. Wow. Those two experiments combined, this is back 1975, 74. This led me to the hypothesis that we have two systems going on. We have this acquired natural system, which we use, and that's really the important one, much to everyone's surprise. And overlaid on this is this knowledge of conscious grammar, which you can use to correct yourself, which is what she did. So that was the beginning, my own research, and I was more surprised than anybody because I was convinced grammar was the answer. At the time, I was a teaching assistant for the ESL program, teaching classes in linguistics in ESL, and I thought the answer was grammar. I was so enchanted by Noam Chomsky. I still am. He's still my hero, my gosh, the great legend, Noam Chomsky. He's in his 90s, he's still doing it, wow. He's the second smartest person in the world. The smartest one is our son, Danny. Anyway, that's another issue. <laughs> Math professor. Can you imagine that? I want to be like him when I grow up. Anyway, I did my feeling then, I wanted to tell everybody in the ESL program, you know, I was reading all these papers by Chomsky, which these brilliant analyses of English grammar. So you guys ought to read this stuff. It should be the basis of your lesson plans. Show them what Chomsky's discovered. They'll have all the rules. They'll have it right. Turns out, dead wrong. And it was my own research that did it. And it took me quite a while to adjust to that. And now it keeps piling up. And there's just no denying it. it took me about six months, a year to get used to it, that this may be the path. But that's what did it. A couple of studies and re-examining my own success in Austria with German, my own success in Ethiopia with Amharic. It was the input I had gotten not the grammar I have studied. And it was the pleasure reading I had done in German, which really helped a lot. So that, that's actually what did it. I am a convert to my own theory. 
I know we're going to have a lot of questions for you on your theory and comprehensible input, but one of the things I want to touch on before we move over to that is the research that your student was doing with their grammar and the how she was able to correct herself. So she knew what the grammar should have been, but using it in practice was a different experience for her. Yes. And I'm wondering what you think that disconnect is, like what's causing that and how can we connect what we know with what we're able to use in application? Perfect question, Shannon. Perfect questions are those I'm prepared to answer. And that's a perfect question. Her conscious knowledge of language allowed her to self-correct. That's really all the conscious knowledge does for you. Now, I have to say, Pauline Pond was a brilliant student. Lost contact with her too bad. She was really, really excellent. Her written English was perfect. She could self-correct as she wrote, and she could go over her own things and find the mistakes. She had acquired a lot of the language. All that was missing were these kind of late acquired little cosmetic points. Given time and a focus on form, she could correct it. That's what it takes. It takes time, knowing the rules, and thinking about rules. And for most people, that's when you give them a grammar test. There are people like Benny who can do it on the spot. There are people who are really excellent at it, but it's kind of unusual that you can do it on the spot. Why is that? Is the use of grammar as like the core for language learning? Why is that so persistent? Because that's unfortunately used in so many schools around the world. And like your research clearly shows it doesn't work. My personal experience also shows it doesn't work when you have a grammar heavy initial language learning approach. So why is that so prominent? Well, I should tell everyone talking about Benny Lewis, here's a free commercial message for Benny's book, which I read every single damn page twice over. Here are my notes. Thank you, Benny. It's very, very good. I got a lot out of it. Thank you so much. Why hasn't it changed the world? Uh, first, there are three very good reasons. First of all, it's buried in technical articles, which are very difficult to read, even for me. And I do this all day long. Uh, the people who write these articles, the articles are too complicated. Tortured prose is how one person describes it. Also, they're very, very long. People publish their dissertations, okay? My articles now are like three, four pages. That's really all you need, just say it. Also, they're in expensive places. You can't find them. I no longer write books because nobody can afford them. And I don't order books because I can't afford them. I don't know anyone who can. The only way you can keep up with the literature is be a professor at a class A university where you have library privileges. So I'm trying to solve this problem by pushing for open access publication of all scientific work in inexpensive places. I give my stuff away for free all the time. I wouldn't make any money on it anyway because nobody can buy it. Okay, what's the point? So that's the solution, I think, and that's going to take a while. The other problem is this, the big one. If I'm correct, I and a bunch of other people, it's a multi-trillion dollar disaster for the textbook publishing industry. As we say in Yiddish, les jeux sont faits. It's over, okay? They, you can't do anything. They have really got to find another way of making a living, and I'm, I hope they all find a, a better way of doing it. Uh, they had good intentions, I'm sure, but it's not working anymore. That's the big reason. It's a major restructuring. I've had discussions with textbook people, app people. They say, we really like your idea, but no one's going to believe us. Common sense is, you know, grammar, because they don't know any better. And we'll go out of business. So I don't have an easy solution, except I hope this new, more new 40 years research gets out and people find easier ways of spreading it around and applying it. So aside from research and papers, publications being one way to disseminate these newish methods. You are also a professor, so you've had the opportunity to work with probably thousands of students over the years and try out these methods in different ways and, and teach these methods. And I'm curious to know how over the last few decades you've seen your research evolve as it's been in more hands. Okay, two answers to this. Uh, it, I'm no longer a professor. I'm a retired professor. I'm what's called Professor Emeritus. Thank you very much. Okay. Uh, which is all very nice, but uh, I don't teach anymore. I'd like to, but universities have changed. Universities now have few professors and mostly adjuncts. 
who are paid by the hour, by the course, and incredibly underpaid. Let me tell you, it's ridiculous. Uh, they're basically at uh, poverty wages, and they do all the work regular professors do. So there's no space for me to teach anywhere. It's all these adjuncts, people that do it. So through the university was very good for me, though. At the USC, I had phenomenal students that I'm still in contact with. I treated them well because I treated them the way my professors treated me, which was wonderful when I was a student at UCLA, inviting them into the club, doing research together, uh, et cetera. Uh, at USC, I've made friends with one of the adjuncts, um, Mushan Ashtari, and we have published several papers together. We've had a really good intellectual, great relationship. Most of the time, I do have really good intellectual conversations with former students still and a few current scholars, professors, but not all that many, because university life has changed quite a bit. So you were saying before that, uh, you know, maybe some of the papers you produced were not as accessible to uh, other people, and that's why uh, change hasn't been as swift as it could be. But even though a lot of traditional schools still, unfortunately, may follow a grammar-heavy approach, I would argue that you have definitely made a huge dent on the language learning uh, sphere because there are people who are coming out with courses. There are loads of influential language learners online who've taken huge inspiration from your many years of work. And this especially um, centers around what you've written about comprehensible input. So I'd love to hear some of the background of how you went from that initial study that convinced you that maybe grammar wasn't the solution to this problem to getting into um, like understanding what is comprehensible input and how did that, uh, how does that contribute to more effective means of learning languages? I have had very good relationships with a number of practitioners who've developed methods that are, I think, pushing in the right direction. And I've worked with them. I've tried them. And just like you, I'm constantly doing languages all the time, which is the very best way to understand what's happening. Uh, in some languages, this is what you need. Some languages, I'm pretty good. Some languages, I'm kind of in the middle. Some languages, I'm terrible. And this is, it's necessary to be at that stage as you have with several languages all at once. It first started with a guy named Tracy Terrell uh, at or University of California at Irvine, who developed a method called natural approach which he said was based on my ideas. And he invited me down to Irvine, sat in on his classes. It was, a, I have criticisms of it now, but it's a huge step forward. He was among the first wave of gay men who died of AIDS, unfortunately, a huge loss to all of us. We were making terrific progress, learning together. It was absolutely wonderful. After that, it was TPRS, where they basically pushed forward, in my opinion, because of their emphasis on stories. I did Mandarin with TPRS, uh, went to lots of demo classes, tried it out, uh, criticisms of it. I think it could be better. But again, a huge step forward. Now my closest colleague is Benico Mason, who's I think uh, I've really tried her stuff. And I'd like to go into that, my own successes with this, where you begin with stories. Teachers tell stories to the students uh, and in advance knows which words are going to be tough, uh, has ways of making them comprehensible, drawing pictures, etc. The students hear hundreds of stories, not one, mostly from grim fairy tales. Then you grab, and this is two, three semesters, say a college class is hearing stories for two, three semesters. That's class. That's very interesting and a lot of fun. Then you move into what she calls guided self-selected reading, which I think is the big breakthrough. Students start reading from graded readers. Easy, easy books that are comprehensible and surprisingly good. I'm sympathetic to this because I guess around 30 years ago, I got interested in Spanish. I, I, right across the hall from us was the Spanish department, so I got friendly with them. And I knew no Spanish, went to the library, got out 10 grammar translation books in Spanish, read the first story of all of them. Then the second one, read the first story. You go through one after three chapters, you're lost because it's all new stuff, grammar. And after about 10 books, I started talking to the 
Hispanic workers on campus, which we had a good time. I, would, I did what you do. We just had conversations, et cetera. And it was very satisfying. So we need more of this. Uh, going back to my uh, time at home, what I've been doing, I'm still doing it. Had a good time at home. And once a, my, my intermediate language right now is Spanish. It's like language number four or five for me. I'm okay. I can have a conversation, but there are things I can't say. Okay. Sometimes I don't understand. So I started going to Ralph's supermarket in Malibu Friday morning at 6.30, only old people. That's me. And it was nice. The first time I went, I was checking out my stuff and the cashier was a guy named Fidel, said Fidel on his jacket. So of course I spoke to him in Spanish. And of course he answered me in English. And I said, Fidel, tu puedes ayudarme. Mi mente es hablar español como ustedes. That really got them. I want to speak Spanish the way you do. Okay, you plural. I said, por favor, hablamos español. We've been speaking Spanish every week for the last over a year. I'm not getting much from just talking to him because it's like a minute, maybe, because he's got other customers. Okay, but it's getting he's using more complicated Spanish. It's more talar, you know, just having conversation, lots of gossip. Who was it to said, who said, if you don't have anything good to say about someone, sit next to me, right? It's been like that. And so we've had a great time. I've been going home reading graded readers every day. I have found that some graded readers are literature. They're getting better and better. I don't do them in, in order. I begin, it's the content that really counts. I can now read authentic Spanish. You know, I'm not that good at it, et cetera. Isabella Allende, oh my goodness. Uh, it's so good that you can't wait to get onto the next uh, sentence to see what's gonna happen next. And you don't mind if you don't get every word, okay? As long as you're following the story, et cetera. So over the last year, my Spanish has gotten better. Uh, not only is uh, Fidel talking more complicated, but I've spoken Spanish to some friends of mine who haven't known me for a while. They said, Steve, your Spanish is so much better. It's the reading. Massive amounts of easy, fairly easy, comprehensible input that's interesting that you get lost in the book. Fascinating. There's some really good authors out there. Adriana Ramirez, Bill Van Patten. Do you know who he is? Bill Van Patten is a very interesting guy. I'm going to tell you all his secrets. Bill Van Patten is a researcher in second language acquisition. He's very good, does wonderful work. He's also a native speaker of Spanish, grew up bilingual, and he's been writing graded readers in Spanish. And I know he won't mind if I tell you this. Bill is very open about his sexual preference, okay? Bill is gay and he tells everyone about it. He doesn't care. One time, my favorite Bill Van Patten story, we're, we were invited to give a, Bill set this up, we're invited to give a joint keynote at the Foreign Language Association, ACTFL. We're up on the stage together answering questions. The lights go out and they come on super bright. And everybody's, you know, oh gosh, what's going on? He looks at me and he says, this is like waking up at four in the morning in a gay bar and you see who you're with. And he looks over and says, I'm with you. Oh no. Anyway, Bill wrote this one graded reader that was so moving about a young man who's gay, autobiographical, and his sister. And I know Bill's very close to his sister. The sister explains to the parents her brother's sexual preference and solves the family problem the way the brother couldn't. Deeply moving, beautiful brother-sister relation. That's what we're getting now in graded readers. They're very, very good. And I owe it to graded readers. Uh, nearly all my Chinese, uh, my Mandarin, comes from graded readers, written in pinyin, written in the romanization for beginners. And after reading a few of them, you know, I could, you know, get through, get a conversation going, um, et cetera. So I think this is extremely valuable. That's been the breakthrough, trying it out myself. So, uh, by the way, free commercial message, no extra charge for this. I have learned a lot from uh, Benny's book, Fluent in Three Months, and the idea of being able to get more out of conversation using uh, the Benny Lewis techniques is something I had some vague idea on, now I have a better sense. 
and it's seeping in. And I think I'm going to be better at it. So there are lots and lots of ways of doing this, I think. But what we have in common is the comprehensible input uh, acquisition part. That's the part that we all do. That's a pretty good answer, right? So beyond comprehensible input, there's been a shift lately where it's more towards compelling input. So like you said, some of these graded readers, they're a lot more compelling, a lot more interesting. So can you talk a little bit more about that shift and what exactly the difference is between just comprehensible and compelling input and why the shift is happening? Thank you, Shannon. Wonderful question. Compelling means it's so interesting, you forget that it's in another language. That's what we're looking for. You're in a state of what Chinsek Mahali calls flow. Please don't ask me to spell his name, okay? He wrote a book called Flow. That I could do, F-L-O-W. And it's about being in a kind of a timeless state where what you're doing is so absorbing, your sense of self diminishes, your sense of time diminishes. And Chinsek Mahali and his colleagues have looked at flow activities around the world, uh, mountain climbers in Spain. When I'm up on the mountain, it's just me and the mountain. They interviewed guys riding their motorcycles, kids in their early 20s. That's a kid for me. On their motorcycles at 1, 2 in the morning in the streets of Tokyo. They're saying, why are you doing this? Well, they thought it was to impress the girls, but the girls aren't out there at 2 in the morning. Basically, they said, when I'm on, the, on my motorcycle, 2 in the morning, nothing else exists. Everything, no sense of time, no sense of self. The most frequently mentioned flow activity is reading. Basically, fiction, which I am now really enchanted with. I think fiction is the huge answer to so many of our problems in language teaching. Really good stories. You become part of the story. You are absorbed into the story. People who read fiction not only get better language, they get better knowledge of the world. They know more. They get more empathy because they meet more people. This is what the research says. So fiction is the answer. My turning point with fiction happened driving on Pacific Coast Highway here in Los Angeles. Uh, we live in a little town on uh, outside the city, about 40 minutes from Santa Monica. And uh, before the pandemic, I was driving into Santa Monica regularly at least two days a week to go to Gold's Gym. You can tell, right? I actually met Arnold. We wrote a paper about how Arnold acquired English. That's another story. But Gossip on Arnold, really nice guy. No question. Very nice. Friendly with everyone on the beach. Can I help you with this? Maybe it's high like this. You know, he's really, really good guy. We all liked him. And the others to see, of course, my grandchildren, whom I'm still addicted to. But I start, what do you do when you're in the car for 40 minutes? You can't listen to the radio because it's all Donald Trump. And the music has changed. All the good music is now on certain programs, certain stations you have to pay for. So I'm not going to do that. I started listening to stories. I went to the local library, got books on tape, books on CD, Santa Monica Library, where my daughter worked, and I could say hi to her. And I started listening. You don't get them in other languages, all in English. And you don't get classics. I'm a college professor. I want to read, you know, Shakespeare. No. I started getting bestsellers that was there. I was amazed at how good they are. I thought it was beneath my dignity. No. Of course, I began with Harry Potter, which was phenomenal. It was so good that when you go to get gas, you stay in the car a moment to hear the end of the chapter. Okay. J.K. Rowling is all about education and Hogwarts and what's going on there, et cetera. After that, Hunger Games, which is also about education, giving all the money to one school. The other schools all compete for it. And then I, I did young people's books, which are very good for the most part. And then mysteries, romances, medical novels, legal novels. I discovered John Grisham. I don't care about law. I was never interested in going to law school. Grisham is amazing. About 20 years ago, I was the foreman of a jury. They elected me as a college teacher and all that. And I didn't do a good job. After I heard the runaway jury, I realized what I missed how I could have been a much better foreman. People who read more know more. This is where we get our knowledge. A little personal note, uh, one of the relatives I'm extremely close to is my cousin, Evelyn, who now lives in the Chicago area. Uh, when I was a little boy, I always hung out with her and her husband, Marty. And she played the violin. I played the piano. And she, she's now in her 90s. Okay. Evelyn and I have been talking as usual. She says, you know, 
Marty, my late husband, was a lawyer. He knew a lot about the law, and that really helped us. I'm going to take a class in law. I said, don't worry about that. Read John Grisham. <laughs> I started sending her John Grisham novels. She agreed. Ten John Grisham novels is like a year of law school. You really understand what's going on. That's how I got involved with fiction, stories, literature, all synonyms. That is great for many people. I'm not saying it's universal, but for me, it has been absolutely wonderful. And it's self-selected books you want to read, not gift books, because that's assigned reading. How'd you like the book I gave you? Oh, no, I never got to it, you know. Uh, but books that you think uh, in the uh, Nico Mason's guided self-selected, the teacher and the students select the books together. The teacher gives an array, pick one of these. So while the kids are getting used to what's out there. That to me is the breakthrough and it's doing it myself. I still, the reading I do, I realize I've been doing this all the time. I haven't spoken German probably in 50 years. The last conversation I had was a year ago in a drugstore person working there was from Germany, you know, that, that's it, you know, two minutes. Okay. My German says, my Deutsch is nicht so schlecht. Yeah. And the reason is, is that I read, I've been reading fiction. I'm not embarrassed to say I've been reading Star Trek novels in English translation, among other things in French, all science fiction. I found a couple of authors I really like, and that does it. It's phenomenal. So I'm still find myself in the fiction path in my interests, narrow reading. And you read a lot of stuff. You get a lot of vocabulary, including academic vocabulary. Uh, my former student, Jeff McQuillan, who is doing first class research, in my opinion, and writing, uh, did an analysis of young people's literature and find if you read a lot of young people's literature, uh, you read, you know, so many books, et cetera, years worth, you get about half of the academic vocabulary you need. Another study, you read science fiction, you get about half of the scientific vocabulary you need to study all areas of science. So fiction is far more powerful than we ever thought. So yes, I'm doing it myself in those areas. I don't have access to lots of native speakers because I'm home all the time, except if I get aggressive like you've done and do it on, on I learned that from your book, uh, find people to talk to, you know, on the computer. That's a great idea. But that's been mostly what I've been doing. And I think it's useful, pleasant. It works. Yeah, clearly it works. I mean, it's, uh, there's so many people who have given testament to this. And one thing that was very interesting for me when I started to uh, write online and as this book was coming out, my goal was to encourage people to get speaking. And some people would frame what I'm presenting as against the comprehensible input approach. And what I like is that you pointed out that there is actually overlap. I've never been this as a purely output approach because I'm always interacting with people. But there, there has been in the language learning community, this understanding that what I'm saying is exactly the polar opposite of comprehensible input. And you're saying there's plenty of overlaps. I'd love to hear, like, what is the overlap in an approach that is more focused on speaking early and often? As long as it includes speaking early and often, I don't know if you could say it's focused on it, but that's the main thing. No question. As you point out in your book, you make sure in beginning stages, the other person is comprehensible. You're slowing down, et cetera. Still, there's a lot of noise in the input, but you're tolerant of that. And that's something, as you point out, you have to you know, get used to. So I assume that keeps going as well. You're still managing to control the input to some extent. And I suspect you got a lot more than you uh, let us see in the book because you're always talking to people. You're getting lots and lots and lots of input all the time. And that totals up. So, yes, it's an input output idea. And you're probably getting more input than output because you can't match these people because they're native speakers. Absolutely. Yeah, that, that's it's great to hear because I've um, I've always found what you've said to be to make intuitive sense and the only reason that I would have been pushing people to um, to be producing as fast as possible is mostly because the uh, traditional academic approaches tend to keep people's mouths shut and say like you know in a group learning environment I'm going to teach at you and someday you'll be ready to speak 
So I've kind of had to take the approach that I'm trying to get people to speak as soon as possible. And it's unfortunate that uh, people have interpreted that as therefore comprehensible input doesn't really work with this because, you know, the the world is not a, a black and white binary thing. You can be looking for those initial conversations while also doing everything that you've just described of like absorbing these beautiful books that you're so passionate about. You don't even want to leave your car until you finish this chapter. Like there, the world is, is not an either or situation and there are benefits to multiple approaches. And like you said, there's a lot of overlap of comprehensible input because I'm controlling conversations. I'm not just getting exposure to native speaking at natural speed. I'm there speaking slowly because I'm requesting that they speak slowly. They're adjusting what they're saying to me and that makes it comprehensible. So there is definitely overlap in a spoken approach with what you've been proposing. Yeah, the bottom line, there is variation among people, but it's constrained. Constrained by the theory, actually. We're all acquiring. We're all acquiring the same way. And some of us, like you, have learned to use some amounts of conscious learning for our own evil purposes, (laughs) to control the input, um, et cetera which we all do. I find myself doing that occasionally too. You can't help it. Okay. I wouldn't, neither, we're, we're using both. And that's really how it is. We're not going, we're not doing things that the theory doesn't allow. It's all within the theory, just different weights to each. Input is really important and it helps us build our knowledge in the language, but transitioning from input to production or output in the language is, can be a little bit nerve wracking because output isn't just knowledge. You also need the physical skills to produce the sounds and coordinate all of this to get the language from here to here. So what has been your experience given that, you know, you're doing a lot of input, but you're still going out and speaking the languages and using the languages. So how do you make that transition from input to output? Let me uh, answer the question and then subvert it to a question I want to talk about. This is the art of being interviewed. Okay. So a good question. Then, you know, oh no, he's going to change it around. I think it's going to come. There is no fear of speaking because it's already there and you find yourself using it. I never worry about having to speak Spanish. I'm not that good at it, but when I see it, it helps to be in Southern California when there are all these Mexican Americans who are so easygoing and so friendly and so easy to talk to. It's wonderful. That helps a lot. So I've had these wonderful conversations and I hear myself coming out with this stuff I didn't know I knew. You know, I told the other guy I'd have to move his car because the garbage truck is coming up, coming on the basura. You know, I didn't know I knew that. Okay. It just came from all the comprehensible input that I've gotten. I'd like to share with you a crackpot theory, which I think is true. What about accent? Uh, There are all these accent improvement classes. Do we really need those things, et cetera? How do we get a good accent? Uh, Benny's chapter uh, goes on about uh, mnemonics using accent, et cetera, how to do it. And I have another, I'll call it a conjecture. A conjecture is a hypothesis where your evidence is not that firm. (laughs) Okay. You can always say it was just a conjecture. Don't worry about it. My conjecture is this. The perfect accent is inside you. We pick up accents very quickly. We're really good at them. We don't perform them because we feel silly. Accent is a marker of club membership. This all came to me from a conversation I had in the 1960s when I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Addis Ababa. I had a conversation with a guy who was British. And he told me about his high school career in the UK, where he had to study French. And as a teenager, they had to do oral examinations in French in front of the faculty, which is some kind of torture for a teenage kid after a year of grammar classes. Okay, And he decided he hated French. He hated the instructors. He hated French culture. He hated everything about it because he had these awful experiences. And he thought he would show his disdain for the faculty, everyone by humiliating himself and humiliating them. He came in dressed French. He had a beret. He had a little glass of liquid, which he pretended was wine. And he exaggerated the French accent, thinking he was 
really being ridiculous. Oh, je suis très content d'être ici avec vous. Comment ça va, mes amis? Hein? And they said, hey, where have you been all year? How come you never talk like that in class? That's fantastic. That's wonderful. Finally, you've got it. Okay. We don't use it because it's not us. Especially when dialect is so close to, there are dialects I have heard all my life, every day, that I know I've acquired, but I don't use because it's not me. I'm not a member of that group. So the accent, and besides, I've looked at the research on accent improvement. It's kind of disappointing. All you get with accent improvement classes, if you focus on a few segments, and that's all, you can get people to be better at that segments in a monitored test where they have time to think about the rule, just like grammar. We do well on grammar if you're focused on that rule and you've studied it and you know the rule. Same thing with accent. Accent improvement classes don't work. I'm sorry to say people will disagree, but that's what the research tells me. Some people have good accents when you feel comfortable, when you feel like you're a member of the group. It's similar. And Benny has a really nice chapter on this. Um, uh, at the end of the books, he talks about kind of your behavior other than language. Uh, do you walk like someone from Saudi Arabia? Do you grow a mustache like everyone else does? Do you wear clothes like that? Very interesting. Clothing is the same way. Our clothes are there for two reasons. One, to protect ourselves from the environment. The other is to mark you as a member of a group. If you go to a party and you're slightly underdressed, slightly overdressed, you make adjustments right away. If you're a guy, you go into the bathroom, take off your tie. Okay. Because it marks your group membership the same as accent, the same as how we hold ourselves, how we talk, um, et cetera. And we know how to do it the way the other group does. Sometimes we don't because we feel we're not a member of that group. When I meet someone from uh, London, I don't start speaking with a British accent. Uh, any American can imitate it, and I probably would do okay, but I just it just won't come out. There's a filter blocking it, even though it's there inside. So I, I absolutely agree with you that the, these things are inside of us. Sometimes um, the approach can depend on whether you can take that out of you. But for a lot of people, a lot of people kind of in their own intuition, they would disagree that anything is inside of them. They feel like languages are completely inaccessible and it's only something you can learn as a child. How can we convince these people that it's... It's something literally anybody can do, that it's not just restricted to children growing up bilingual. Well, you remember our old buddy, Steve Kaufman? Of course. Steve Kaufman, I consider him my language therapist. I always take his advice. He's really sharp on this. He knows like 16 languages. And three years ago, he said he's done half of them since age 61. There you go. And I've been with him and so have you. He's really good. I watched a presentation in French from Canada where he was in the audience and he raised his hand, spoke beautiful French. He and I have dined in Spanish speaking restaurants. He's great. He and I went to the ACTFL meeting together, ran into my Chinese teacher. He came with us to lunch with her friends. They were thrilled the way he could speak Putinghua, the way he could speak Mandarin. He was amazing. He's the real thing. It's there. We can all do it. No question. The idea that adults can do it too, I, I'm going to grab most of the credit for this because of my brilliant dissertation research. This is a lesson behind this, which is really interesting. I thought there was a critical period. I assumed there was. And I read a book called Biological Foundations of Language by Eric Lindeberg, which I thought was absolutely brilliant. I still think it's brilliant. It was wrong, but it's brilliant. He said, what happens, the reason, the reason kids are better, and we get accents around the time of bar mitzvah, okay, when you go through puberty, is because of the left and right side of the brain. In the beginning, they're all kind of together. But as you grow up, the left goes to the left, the right goes to the right. It's called lateralization. And it's settled by the time you're in puberty. And that's when you get accents. Which I thought was a really interesting argument. I assumed it was right. I decided in my dissertation to show that he was right. I reanalyzed all the brain research. I did research in what's called dichotic listening, where you hear different stimuli. We found he was wrong. The interesting thing was I published it, my dissertation, and it had an impact, was quite successful. 
The interesting thing about it is that I wrote Lindenberg right away. He wrote back and said, I think you're right. <laughs> okay. He says, I too have found research that I was wrong on this. What a guy. And now the ultimate name dropping, if you can handle this, is coming up. I had a podcast with Noam Chomsky. Can you imagine that? I was totally starstruck. I mean, my gosh. <laughs> and we agreed. We talked about Lindenberg because he and Lindenberg were classmates. So they were friends. There's nothing wrong with being wrong. Chomsky freely admitted that. So did Lindenberg. What it was was a step forward. And that happens when you write all the time and you revise. You're always finding that you're wrong. You're always finding that you're wrong over and over. We're always revising. And that is basically a powerful way of thinking deeper, finding better solutions, uh, process of revision. And that's that's life. So that was the dissertation work that started it off for me. The idea that adults that happened to coincide with uh, the fact that we think that adults can acquire as well. So given that you are learning, speaking, using a multitude of languages, how do you balance where your attention goes and what sort of input you're using in which languages and figuring out what? Okay. Uh, it's so hard to get interesting input in other languages. I just take what's around. If I find a good book in French, I'll get it. I'll get a copy. Okay. At the moment at my bedside, I have a graded reader in Chinese. My former teacher, Hayun Lu, has written some really interesting stories. I have a book on metaphysics and philosophy that's actually nonfiction, I think, in, uh, in French. And I have more graded readers and I'm just greeting whatever's around, whatever I can get, because it's really tough to get comprehensible input, especially if you're an English speaker. It's really hard. My relatives, let me tell you, I'm going to complain about my relatives now. My relatives in Israel, they're Israelis. We all kind of grew up together when we went trips to Israel and all that. We love each other. We're great pals. We always speak English. Their English is better than mine. I can't get a word of Hebrew out of them. Okay. It's that bad. So it's English. It's always a, a you know, I'm always in this struggle everywhere I go. Other people know all about this too. I found ways of getting around it. But it's not easy to get input, comprehensible input in other languages. So I take what's there. No problem. This is a big problem that we have is finding this uh, comprehensible input. But it's really changed over the years that the amount of stuff we have available to us, both in online resources and with, like you said, the uh, graded readers, there's more and more materials that are constantly coming out. And it really, I think people don't tend to appreciate how much easier they have it nowadays compared to how it used to be. Uh, what are your favorite resources? I have not explored the internet very much. I haven't gotten used to it being my age. Okay. I guess that's part of it. Uh, but your book has encouraged me to do it. No, really, no kidding. This is a, a good thing. And your successes and you're saying this has been is very important. That's a good thing to share, which you have done. You know, I've tried this, I've tried that, you know, the successful ones, um, et cetera. So that's where we're gonna, I agree. We're gonna make very rapid progress. And so am I. I can't wait. I am 81 years, 80 years old, and I'm still doing this. It's still great. It's still interesting. Okay. So one of the questions that we always like to ask our guests when they come on the podcast is, what is Stephen Krashen's definition of language hacking? Language hacking is a set of tricks to basically get people to talk to you and keep the conversation moving. And the tricks include simplifications of grammar. Like this is how you make the past tense in Spanish, just add an end to this and definitive ending and all that. Uh, that's very helpful. You don't really need some of them because you can make mistakes. As you've pointed out, Kaufman said it so beautifully. Don't worry about making mistakes. Nobody cares. <laughs> okay. I speak Spanish knowing that I do not have any idea of ser and estar. And I know I had this two weeks in Mexico a couple of years ago. And I lived with teachers of Spanish, having lunch and dinner with them every night. Very friendly people. And we would gossip all the time. And I decided, having just read Kaufman's advice, 
not to worry about Saturnistar. Nobody commented. And I got all this delicious input that I was ready for. So learning, it's tricks you can use. A lot of them you can use right away. Uh, keeping conversation going. Benny has a, a section in the book of important phrases. You really don't need, but you can, they really smooth it out for you. Like, I was just thinking that, you know, kind of stuff like that. Or a few of those here and there, I think, can smooth things and make your conversation easier and make people more comfortable in talking to you. That your, your conversation's running smoothly and they'll focus more on the topic that way. So this is what I call hacking. This is my definition. Uh, techniques to keep conversations running smoothly, keep the input coming. Absolutely. And we were saying just before we started that you're having a kind of a Newton moment these days where you're using this pandemic and the lockdown to create all of these uh, new research uh, that you've been looking into. It's just you've had this explosion of creativity so what do you see uh, over the, the short term, the medium term that you're going to be doing? Um, and what kind of research are you looking into? It's easy because I don't feel the need to write long papers. Uh, you don't have to give people a history of Western civilization before you start writing and have a conclusion where you give people advice on what they should do and not do. You know, you just, I read a paper. I downloaded it from Nature magazine. It was free by Crick and Watson, the inventors of the double helix. If you remember half of secondary school biology, you can understand it. It was so unbelievably clear. That's the goal. And if you can't tell them everything, they'll read other papers. You know, they don't have to get the whole thing from one paper. You don't publish dissertations. So I'm writing like that, and I'm trying to get my ideas down. Uh, I wrote a paper just for Benny in preparation for this, and that was fun because I knew it didn't have to be long. Is just a way of clarifying thinking. I don't know where it's going. It's just so I'm I'm writing a couple of papers now uh, that are just beginning to get. One is on learning new scripts. Uh, the debate in Chinese is whether you have to do Hanzi or can you use Pinyin. In uh, Farsi, it's called Finglish, uh, and I'm totally in favor of it for reasons very different from how it's used now. I you know when you read in Hanzi and it's too hard, they have the little opinion marker or even no i think you should read do whole stories and whole novels in the romanization then people can acquire the language the more you acquire the language the easier it is to learn to read the different script that's the interesting part so i'm writing an article about that it's going to be called why not finglish uh, and my, my uh, colleague, Nushan, is thinking of writing some stuff that way, et cetera. People are writing a few books in English for parents to read to their kids. These are people who've gotten it as heritage language and speak the language, but, you know, aren't literate in it, so to speak, as a root. So I'm considering that and I'm going to write a paper because as I'm writing, I'm going to find things wrong. I'm going to revise. I'm also now more interested in the idea of incubation. This is part of the composing process and how we get smart. To review what I just said a moment ago, the key in writing, what we call the composing process, is have respect for your writer's blocks. When you get a writer's block, be happy. It means you're about to learn something new. Take a break. I learned this from one of the Poincaré, the great mathematician. You have a trouble, trouble in math, get up from the table, do something mindless. Put some wood on the fire. Come back in two minutes. And the block is a little bit broken up and you keep doing that through the day. And little by little, one baby step at a time, you start making progress. I presented this at a public forum, mainly our discussion group at the synagogue. <laughs> I get up early every Thursday morning and go to an ethics class, which is really fun. Same people over and over. We talk about Jewish ethics, which is very nice. Uh, anyway, I, uh, I talked once about this idea of solving problems through incubation and my discovery that it's really meditation. It's stilling the mind so ideas can come out. A friend of mine in the group who is not in language, he said it happens to him when he drives. When he drives, that's when his things become clear. And then when he finally stops, he sees the solutions are now clear and he can do it. I wrote him back and said, I can't do that. Because when I get a new idea, if I don't write it down, it's gone. 
I want to do some studies to see how many people do it one way, how many people do it the other. Are these two paths with the same goal using slightly different techniques? So that's going to be my next project. I'm going to give some lectures on the writing process, and I'm going to include that as a question to the audience. And I'm going to start, I started this morning by writing a little paper about it, saying these are two ways of doing it. And that's where you discover where you have gaps in your thinking, what questions to ask next. So revision is wonderful. And that's among the many things you'll be working on. Very interesting. Like you said, that's uh, you've been publishing these much more compact papers, so very accessible for, for people to, to check out. And um, I would encourage people to do so. We'll make sure that we leave links to uh, your work and how people can find you in the show notes of the episode. Here's the easy way. Follow me on Twitter. I want to catch up to Justin Bieber on Twitter. Okay. <laughs> That's right. When, when you and I met in Montreal, I was, I was telling you how to uh, move forward with your Twitter. I hope, I hope to verify you soon. I announce new things. I used to I Twitter every day, just about announce papers by other people that seem good, et cetera, et cetera. And I have a website, sdcrashen.com. D is middle name, David. And a lot of my articles are posted there, including books, download them, share them with your friends. Excellent. So people will get all those links uh, in the show notes and I hope they go check you out. And again, thank you so much for your time. Thank you for the fascinating answers. It's been very interesting. Thank you again so much. Thank you, Benny. Thank you, Shannon. Been a pleasure. And for everybody listening, we will wish you very good language learning. Happy language learning. All right. So at the end of each episode, Benny and I like to share a takeaway, something that we learned in our conversation with our guest that can be implemented into your language learning right away. So let's just jump right in. Benny, what was your takeaway from our conversation with Stephen Krashen? There were so many takeaways. Very, very interesting conversation. Uh, one of them for me is that, and I had talked with Stephen before we went live about this, that he actually considers my speak from day one approach to implement a lot of uh, comprehensible input. And I, I find that fascinating because I had originally heard of uh, Stephen Krashen from people telling me that he is the opposing view to speak from day one. The comprehensible input is completely incompatible with speak from day one. And I wouldn't say that Stephen is then uh, telling everybody, you know, Benny's approach is the best approach. I wouldn't go that far, but I would say that it truly goes to show that there is a lot of commonalities and that language learning is not this black or white. Some people are right, some people are wrong. I really like that he does feel there's a, there is comprehensible input in an approach that's more focused on speaking from the, the get-go. But other than that, I would say that what he said about graded readers has really convinced me because I actually did a standalone episode that people would have heard a few weeks back where I was giving my advice on, on how I've gotten into reading languages. And uh, to be honest, it has not implemented graded readers. And this chat with Stephen has shown me that uh, there is that gap for me, that I should be more open to using materials that are designed to help people improve their reading skills. I've already implemented that in my speaking skills by, as he said, I kind of control the situation and the other person speaks slower to me. So I'm forcing that to be comprehensible. And I didn't really implement that in my reading. I would just pull the reading in bit by bit. But he's really showed me that I could start looking into graded readers. And I know there's lots of options out there. I know my friend Ollie makes uh, short stories that would uh, implement that kind of concept. So I'm going to be looking into this a lot more and seeing if I can make graded reading uh, part of my learning process instead of what I tend to do, which is leave the reading until I get to the B2 levels and above. What were your takeaways? I would have to say that my takeaway was Stephen's adaptability. There were many occasions where he mentioned he was very convinced by one theory, which in our case as learners would be one method, only to find out later in his research and in his experiments that that theory might not necessarily be correct or the best or the most effective. So for us as learners, you know, we very get into like our one method. So it's like, oh, this is my approach and this is the best approach for me. And maybe that might be true in that moment. 
But if we have an open mindset and we're willing to be somewhat adaptable, we may find something slightly better, some like a next level or a next step or something that may be a little bit different than what we're comfortable with, but is more effective. So I think his mindset with being okay with being wrong in what his research or what his methodology may be, and being willing to grow and change and delve into something different. And I think that that's something that we can all take away from this discussion as well. So once again, if you enjoyed this episode of the podcast, we would love to hear from you. Let us know what your thoughts are over at languagehacking.com slash review. All of the links and everything else mentioned in this episode are available to you as a part of the show notes. And until the next time, happy language learning. Happy language learning. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Language Hacking Podcast. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podcast Addict, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you found this episode valuable and want to help us out, please leave a review at languagehacking.com forward slash review. The Language Hacking Podcast is presented by Benny Lewis, Shannon Kennedy, and Elizabeth Bruckner, and produced by Katie Pasco, with special thanks to the Fluent in Three Months team. Theme music was written and performed by Shannon Kennedy. Find the show notes at languagehacking.com forward slash podcast. Thank you for listening and happy language learning.